0: This episode of Designed by Architectural Record is sponsored by Vitro Architectural Glass, continually advancing how buildings look and perform. According to recent studies, Vitro Glass, formerly PPG Glass, is one of the industry's most respected glass manufacturers and responsible for many of the industry's most specified products, including high-performance solar band solar control, low-E glasses, and Starfire Ultra Clear Glass. Explore products and request curated sample kits at vitroglazing.com. One more time, that's vitro v i t r o glazing.com.
1: We feel internally that unless we can articulate what we're doing, and that isn't necessarily just in words, it can be in words and diagrams and imagery, that we don't own it. And so until we can articulate it, we don't think we're done. As we are designing, we're actually trying to formulate that argument at the same time.
0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Designed, a podcast by Architectural Record. We appreciate you listening. And once finished, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast, rate us, and leave a comment. If you'd like to learn more about Designed and see all the other great content that Architectural Record has to offer, please visit architecturalrecord.com for more information. Enjoy the show and have a wonderful day. everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Designed by Architectural Record. I'm your host, Aaron Prenz. As always, I just want to start by saying thank you to everyone out there for listening to the podcast, sharing it with your friends, all the reviews on the iTunes review section. That's really the easiest way for us to get the podcast out to more people is just go on there, leave us a comment, let us know what you think of the podcast, and uh, we'd really appreciate it. Of course, be sure to check out architecturalrecord.com and be sure to follow us on Instagram at designed.podcast to stay up to date with everything we have going on. This week's episode, we have Joshua Ramos of Rex, the founder of Rex, and it was a really great episode. This guy, he, he's he's very smart, and the content he has, I don't think it's anything like we've uh, heard on the podcast before, so we go into a lot of things from uh, his time at OMA to founding Rex, a lot of the work on the Seattle Central Library, which is a personal uh, favorite project for me, and uh, there's just a lot to take away, a lot of theory, and just a really smart guy and overall just great person to talk with, so... I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's it's one of my favorites. So I don't want to delay this too much. So sit back, relax, enjoy. Here we go with Joshua Ramus. I want to start with this idea of architecture as a spectacle. And I mean, it, it's so common now, and we talk about this a lot on the podcast, where design is somewhat, in my opinion, influenced by social media and Instagram and getting an iconic sort of photo or one shot and pushing form as far as it can go. And I listened to your 2006 TED Talk on the Seattle Public Library, which I really enjoyed. And I went to school in the Northwest. And one thing you really pointed out, and I don't want to just have you repeat the same thing, but your notion of rational design in terms of how in your design process. And I think it's a really interesting concept because when I look at schools and students and young architects work now, there's a sense, in my opinion, at least, of form for the sake of form, and the crazier it is, the better the more architecture it is. But mm-hmm. through hearing you explain these sort of things, I feel like you're really a simple concept. You're not over complicating it through the actual theory behind the design. So I was just wondering, could you start by kind of taking our audience through your design process when you go to enter into a project, and just how does that fit in now with the Starchitect is kind of a dumb term, but you know what I mean? This sort of <laughs> over-complication of architecture, yeah. we'll say. Yeah.
1: If you don't mind, you like what I don't think it's a tangent, but I think it's a, an important precursor to that conversation, which is to say just as I've, as I've aged, I like to be able to say something before discussing this um, because I think that people often misunderstand stood. My position as being a kind of retreat back to or a, a return to just form follows function, a kind of you know functionality. And you know to be clear, joy is important in architecture. Beauty is important. I just think that we have found that it's obviously it's it's subjective, and discussing it is difficult. And so, from a a process standpoint. We discuss issues of beauty a lot internally. We don't present on those terms and we don't attempt to convince a client to pursue one design option over another based on beauty. Instead, we, you know, it's interesting. These are all things that, you know, I, I discuss all the time and I realized as we were just starting this conversation that because of COVID, I haven't lectured much in the last, you know, since February. Everyone hasn't really lectured or spoken publicly much. And so it forces me to not just fall into kind of rote regurgitation of, of answers to some of these things. I have to kind of go back and think. So I actually think this conversation may be really fruitful for me as well. You know, we, we go back to first principles and and discuss what's driving a project's ambitions with a client from those first principles. And you know, in those discussions, sometimes it it forces us to invent new things sometimes it forces us to assert the status quo you know there's no kind of goal of trying to necessarily achieve newness right? it's really about finding solutions that are very much in service to the the collective objective of the project and our observation has been and it's something that I learned starting with the Seattle library is that by kind of doggedly exploring that by being really Really committed to um, finding very tailored one off solutions, eschew all kinds of preconceived notions about what the solution is and arrive at something kind of you could you know, you, you didn't anticipate before. And so it's it strangely, while it sounds like a very intellectual way of working, I believe it is, it's actually also rewarding aesthetically. It, it arrives at unexpected surprising solutions that you simply wouldn't have conceived initially or individually and without going through that process. So I, I often say that we're, you know, steering the the ship, but we don't necessarily know where we're going. You know, we're just trying to steer it in a really professional, conscientious way. And we're trying to get to someplace good, but we don't know what that what that solution is. Um so over the years we've called that process, we called IPM, Issue Position Manifestation. And so we we work with our clients to discuss what their issues are. We then, with them, establish very, very clear positions. Um, and it's based on those positions that we then put forward architectural manifestation. And that sounds very linear, but the rea- reality is it's, it's messy. Sometimes from the outside of a project, we'll have clear intuitions about what the position is or even about what the solution is and that that will then kind of work upstream and help us articulate what the issue is and then once we've been able to better articulate the projects underlying issues it then works back downstream and changes maybe what our initial intuitions were and then it goes back up and back down and maybe the last thing i'll say on this is that we very much believe in argument, And so, you know, I've, I've just laid this idea of, you know, articulating an issue, a position and a manifestation or issues, positions and manifestations. That notion of being able to argue a project's logic, it maybe it comes from my own educational background, maybe it just comes from, what you know, predilections I have, but we feel internally that unless we can articulate what we're doing, and that isn't necessarily just in words. It can be in words and diagrams and imagery um, that we don't own it. And so until we can articulate it, we don't think we're done. As we are designing, we're actually trying to formulate that argument at the same time. And presentations to owners, then you typically come with a very clear rationale that, that, that follows that, you know, that issue, position, manifestation.
0: I think it's interesting, just on a side note, that you brought up beauty. 'Cause the first big interview I had, well, second, was with Schumacher. And he was his whole thing about formulating a presentation, he said something like, uh, it wasn't about schmoozing with clients. It was about creating a striking presentation. And then he said, like, beauty always wins. That's what we go mm-hmm. for. And so I think just a tangent. I think it's it's interesting the two sides of that mm-hmm. conversation. But what I wonder about what you just discussed is where does originality fit into this in terms of new design? And just to go back to the example of young architects coming up, I feel like there's so much bastardization might be a little harsh, but just like regurgitating bad versions of Zaha projects is what I see happening in a lot. In terms of originality and setting yourself apart, how does this come into your design process? I was going to say then that could even be applied to project to project. Cause I mean, You've won some awards like the Marcus Prize of Rising Star Architect. Do you feel this constant need to have to outdo your last project and outdo your last project and come up with something different and it can't be the same? And it's just this sort of cycle of having to outdo yourself as well as others?
1: Um, It's actually, it's a a great question given a lot of our internal discourse right now. The whole host of different responses. The first is I, I personally think that kind of pure originality in the way Many people see it is overrated. You know, as I said, we, we go back to first position, first principles with our, our clients, and and if in the process we reaffirm convention, fantastic. If that's the best solution, what's wrong with that? Why why search for for newness if newness isn't the appropriate response? We also, you know, I think one of the traps of originality is the sense that you know every project has to be different and. What I find interesting is that our profession somehow seems to be really comfortable with the idea of people advancing an aesthetic agenda. So no one seems to, and I'm I'm saying this agnostically, I'm not saying that actually with any criticality one way or the other. No one seems particularly bothered that um, Frank Gehry's work has been a commitment to um, amongst many things. It's a commitment to the advancement of a really unique aesthetic. You know that one project looks like the previous with with very intentional and intelligent evolutions, but nonetheless, it's a each project is within a larger project, larger investigation. But for some reason, our profession seems really critical when people do that with with ideas. It's come is antithetical. It's you know in science. You know, you can get the Nobel Prize for pursuing someone else's idea and failing, and then the process of doing that, you know, saying this whole approach to a certain part of physics actually is not a viable thing to explore. That is considered laudable, right? To the point that you can even win the Nobel Prize for it. And yet somehow in our profession, if you develop an idea in a project, and then in another project, you pick up on that idea and continue to develop it, you somehow, you know, it's, oh, they've done that before, that's cheap. But if it were to look the same, no one seems to have a problem. And I find that a really weird paradox. And the reason I say that, you know, we've been discussing a lot internally is, is we've actually been kind of unabashedly saying, these are our ideas, we think they're good, we're still working on them. We're evolving them, and we're going to continue to do so. And I don't care if it comes from something that we've done previously. In fact, we're we're very clear to our clients. Here's something we explored previously, and these are the, the kernels of ideas and and values that we got out of that, and we think it's applicable here, and fantastic. So we kind of are doing, uh, you know, unabashedly at this point.
0: Well, before we dive too far into your career, because we have a lot to go over. Uh, real quickly, we're going to go way back. Can you take our audience through where you grew up, kind of what your parents did, the economics of the household, and out of all the things you could have done in life, why the heck yeah. architecture?
1: I, I've, I've been blessed with with many parents. Um, my parents divorced when I was quite young. I was born in New Haven, Connecticut, and one parent went to D.C. and then Seattle, and the other parent went to North Carolina in the Outer Banks. Father is a marine biologist. Stepmother is a librarian. Mother is a retired, but, but is retired, but was a civil rights attorney. And my late stepfather was a child and educational psychologist who, at the age of 62, retired and became a fireman. So, you know, uh, a family environment that was educated and really supported education in any, every way, but certainly, you know, kind of upper-middle-class upbringing. Yeah. I, I sort of then just turned to Isabel to see if she would say if you had anything else to that background. What, what, else, you, um, what
0: well, else did why, you ask? Him, why, did you, why, why architecture?
1: Why, yeah, why, why architecture? When I, I actually didn't study architecture in college. I studied philosophy and in fact, I originally was a philosophy and mathematics dual major. And when I re- realized that Yale wouldn't confer two degrees on me, I finished my philosophy thesis in the fall and said, screw it, I'm going to focus on rowing in the spring. Why do, why do my mathematics um, thesis if they're not going to give me a second degree anyway? And all of my other courses, aside from philosophy and mathematics, because it pretty much covered my breadth by having those two different focuses, were art courses. And I had a, a really amazing experience with Erwin Hauer, who, who is a, a sculpture professor at Yale. Um, you may know him as, as you know, he, he developed these really beautiful screen wall bricks that a lot of modernists used in, in their projects. And he encouraged me to go into either sculpture or architecture. And, you know, he was relentless. And I took architectural, I guess it was like a, a modern architecture survey course with Esther de Costa Meyer, and she was extraordinary. And and then I took a an aesthetics course with Carsten Harrys that was you know within my philosophy major and and loved it. And that sort of set me in the direction. You know, I, I in some ways I think I still approach architecture with that background, a philosophy background. I I in a way I got disillusioned. I, I think that people who study philosophy seriously either go. All in, or they become disillusioned. If they become disillusioned, they realize that they're studying people who are debating other dead people. And, and it stays in a very esoteric realm. And there's not, if, if you're thinking that you're, you're studying something that's going to change how you live your life, it's not really what happens in as you're studying philosophy.
0: Interesting. And I. Just because I think the most successful architects we've had on the podcast so far, they all mm-hmm. have had some sort of other either interest or career before getting into architecture. So mm-hmm. as you're designing now and you're designing pretty massive projects, how does that philosophy degree kind of influence what you're doing now?
1: So very, very much in the, in the way I described previously of that, of that creation of an argument. You know, we're very Socratic in the office we were constantly debating people constantly taking positions as a devil's advocate. And I have given, said this anecdote before that entry into our office sometimes comes as a little bit of pain at first because people, you know, I think in, in architecture school, we're really, as you said, that we're really taught about, you know, to value originality and it's about my ideas and beauty and, And so people very much are in love with what they create and when they come into our office people are are really debating in a a pretty aggressive way and people feel threatened they feel that you know if their idea what they put on the table their contribution to whatever the design issue we're discussing gets attacked they feel personally attacked and that causes anxiety in the first month or two and almost every long-term employee we've ever had, at some point had to be pulled aside and said, you do understand that the time to get upset is not when you put something on the table and everyone attacks it, because that means it's either for better or worse, they're provoked by it and they're trying to understand it. And they're, they're, they're grilling it to see it's, its survival skills. When you should be upset and go home and cry, is when you put something on the table and everyone looks at it and goes, okay, well, this idea over here, and they just move on. That's when you should be upset.
0: <laughs> Not- the architecture. architecture review in studio where they're talking about your North Arrow for five minutes and it's like, right. clearly there's right. some other, something missing from the project. Yeah. yeah. How much of this, because you had a long history with OMA and Rem Koolhaas, and we had Chris Van Duren on the podcast back probably a year and a half ago, two years ago. and he had a lot of interesting um, antidotes, we'll say, about building a model and looking up and seeing the model flying at his face. And he said he quit like three times because he's like, I can't take this abusive environment. Ah. And so I feel like this, there's a culture of OMA and REM from back in the day that is kind of, I mean, it's well documented, but how much of that has kind of made itself into Rex?
1: i think I probably have two ways of responding or two 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 valuable parts of the response you know the, the first is that this unrelenting attack of a design solution is very much something I and mean, is why i went to oma you know given my philosophy background is why i gravitated to oma and to rem in the first place uh, as i felt home there and if anything i would say that rem is maybe a little more I haven't worked and collaborated with Rem now for, for 16 years. So I don't know what the world is there now. But if anything, I would say that, um, on projects like Seattle, Rem possibly was, felt a little discomfort with the unrelenting need to argue and justify every move. Like he's probably more comfortable with kind of intuitive move and I like it and let's move on whereas I tend to want to analyze it. And, you know, I stayed committed to that because, largely because of my feeling of the success of Seattle, um, that, you know, that, that relentlessness led to something that personally, and I'm, I'm not talking about how it was received or hope it's been received publicly, but personally, I felt it was very successful and it was a result of that relentlessness. On the other hand, the other thing I will say is that when I came to New York to open the US office, you know, the United States is obviously a, a more demanding environment in terms of sort of like dumb, banal professionality. How you set yourself up and how your payroll is done and do you have health benefits? And, you know, it's all this stuff like in the 90s in the Netherlands. We didn't, you know, health benefits like that. <laughs> Um, you know, is socialized medicine. So I guess you could have walked into the emergency room if you needed it. But, you know, it, it just wasn't the same kind of environment that we had to have in New York. And there wasn't a good blueprint for that. And I hope, and, and I'm probably not the best person to say it, because the kind of hopeful author of it, I'm probably not the best person to evaluate its success. But you know it's, we 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 create a very demanding environment intellectually, but we want it to be a very supportive environment in terms of salaries, vacation, payroll corporations you know um other kinds of benefits, parental leave for children, having families you know um we don't worry about how much people are working because the team works very hard, you know and so it, it's just not the kind of um we try to create a very supportive environment within which people are very critical of the work they're doing, and uh, it's very demanding. But otherwise, we want it to be an extremely
0: healthy, supportive place. Well, you've also you've spoken out against uh, some of the quotes I've found from you that says something like, uh, working off a one genius sketch is not the way a great architecture should be made. How has that influenced kind of the way you run your practice?
1: Well, I again, I don't know what OMA is like now and what what I can see is that I was one of the first partners and that and that culture is clearly uh, extended there 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 are now many partners and, and they have much more autonomy. And so I I don't know what the environment is there but I I certainly can't say that when I was at OMA Whatever the perception was, one of Brett Ram's greatest strengths was that he assembled always a group of really intelligent people and put them, you know, as, as a young architect, the biggest gift he gave to all of us is he would put us in environments and, and situations that we would not otherwise have ever been given. You know, I, I was 29 when I started the Seattle Central Library. That's insane. Um, and I'm, by no means the only person to have received that kind of situation within which to grow. And Rem created an an environment where ideas were king, and the best idea won. And it didn't matter if it came from him or from an intern. And the, the reason we separated actually really had to do with just kind of internal organizational issues of the fact that, that Rem and I owned the New York office jointly and created a, a weird disparity between the New York office, which was doing very well, and the head office in Rotterdam, in which there were starting to be a number of partners and we couldn't really deal with the ownership, couldn't figure out how to structure it and so forth. And starting with the Wally Theater, we had really started our own culture in New York. And so there there were a lot of just kind of structural reasons why it made sense to to separate.
0: When you, when you split off and started Rex out of OMA New York, what was that process kind of like for you? And was there a sort of within the industry like, oh, this is just OMA 2.0, or how did you differentiate yourself from the work you'd previously done?
1: Okay, I, I will always say that I had one of the most, you know, I, I can't tell anyone to point at my trajectory and say, try to copy that because I, I was given so many opportunities and. I it was just wildly fortunate, you know, this series of of events of, you know, doing a project in my own hometown of going to Ome when I did of the firm exploding while I was there being one of the people that was in the thick of that growth. The fact that I happened to be an American and I came back to the United States and that we had all this American work, et cetera. You know, there's just all these things that I, I recognize that I was extremely fortunate. I was at, you know, at the right place at the right time. But what it also meant is that by the time we went on our own in 2006, you know, we opened the US office in 2000, um, really as we started to you know, move into schematic design, design development, development to the Seattle Library. But uh, we were also working on Guggenheim Las Vegas and the Prada Stores, which were very much. conceived and designed in Rotterdam, but nonetheless we were working on their implementation in New York and Beverly Hills. All that to say is that we had the fact that in two thousand six we separated, it wasn't the plan by any means. As you said, it really happened quite quickly and it happened for good reason, having to do with Rotterdam starting to empower other partners and potential partners. So as I said, really was a kind of at some point we we had a, a meeting in Rotterdam, and it became clear that the only reason, in a way, New York was still part of OMA was because of my relationship with RAM and the importance of that and, and the mentorship of it. it was, you know, I wasn't collaborating with the other partners in Rotterdam. It was kind of a vestigial organization. What I guess what I was saying is that by, by the time we actually separated, the intellectual separation had already happened. We'd already been working independently for for a long time, and we'd already been generating our own culture for a long time. And so the you know the actual act of separation was changing the name of it. That was kind of it. Right? For various reasons, you know, we had 33 employees in New York on the day before we became officially Rex, and we had 33 employees in the firm the day we became Rex. You know, we had the same projects. We had the same. You know, there wasn't a kind of um, transition and shock that I think most people have to suffer just in you know they walk out the door and they don't have clients and they don't have a staff and they have to start to build it anew on the other hand when the economy tanked in 2008-2009 we went through that (laughs) so we weren't spared it but didn't suffer it in the
0: same way that most people did. can we Um, talk uh just for a moment about the Seattle Central Library mm -hmm. um because it has two of my favorite architectural moments out of a building I've actually been in with the exception of maybe Vols. (laughs) And that's the red room that leads to all the offices down on the bottom. I think it's just, it's (laughs) fun. It's cool. It's hip. You can get a cool photo. I don't know. And the other one is the little balcony that just really has no reason to be there, but it's there. And for me, that project, when you approach it on the street, it kind of comes out of nowhere on the street because you're just in downtown Seattle. And then all of a sudden it's like, It differentiates itself pretty well uh, formally. There's like a change in scale from the outside of the building to the inside. Mm -hmm. Once you're inside, it feels like it's really just insanely massive the way you did it. So can you kind of talk us through just a little bit about maybe some of your favorite parts of that project and really what that did for your career?
1: Sure. You know, in some ways, a terrifying project for me to discuss because it's, you know, a lot of my time on every new project thinking, will we ever, you know, this has to achieve that again. And, and that's just kind of a daunting, a daunting experience. You know, to, to respond to some of the two, two floors that you two spaces that you mentioned, um, they both have interesting anecdotes. In terms of the, what we call the assembly floor, or sorry, meeting floor. It's very much what I described earlier about something that's even that, which seems totally whimsical, came out of an argument. For a whole host of reasons, largely economic and functional, we wanted to to coalesce all the meeting spaces onto one floor. And economic because that would mean that we wouldn't burden those occupancies, you know, the stairs and the elevators wouldn't be burdened by them. If we spread them out, that would increase those loads and therefore increase the sizes of the of that infrastructure. And you know, the project was done at, at a very tight budget. It also meant that functionally they could. Operate that floor independently. So if they wanted to have a conference and, and rent out that floor, they could lock it off and even use it when the rest of the library wasn't open. So there were a whole host of reasons why we did that. But, um, you know, we had the one, one story egress out of, um, the living room and we had the main core and another stair core and we had all these meeting spaces and we were, you know, this was 2000. And so the you know, grasshopper wasn't what it is now, and we were designing this largely using Microsoft Excel, and we had the occupancies, and we had them on the floor, and we were trying to figure out how to work out all the egress distances, and we would do them as circles, because that was a, a easier way to do weighted averages, and then we would rationalize them, quote-unquote, into rectangles, and of all of a sudden, it wouldn't work again. And then we would go back and try to try to work it out again using circles, and then rationalize it into rectangles. And at some point, we we're like, "Why? Why don't we just build the floor out of circular shapes? We we can get it to work. We can get all the weighted averages and, and egress distances to work." And we took it to the the city librarian, who is extraordinary. And she she in terms of leadership, she's always a model for me, Deborah Jacobs, because she she as well as the board knew how to take educated risks. And, you know, she would set very, very high bars, but if you crossed them, if you were able to leap over them, she would, she would run with it, and She, she was very honest in how she, how she evaluated things. And I can remember our presenting this idea of the, of the meeting floor with all these sort of bizarre, almost like, um, cowhide, you know, cow, cowhide pattern forms. And I could tell she wasn't wildly enthusiastic about it. And so she said, what a, what a good leader should do. She said, well, if you can convince the maintenance staff that this is okay, because she didn't want to say, no, I don't like it, then, okay, we'll do it. And we took it to the maintenance team. And the maintenance team, to her complete chagrin, took one look at it and went, oh, fantastic, because now we don't have to like try to, to clean you know, into corners. You know, this works so much better for our polishing um, machinery and equipment, and and da, 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 da. and you could just see she was sort of like <laughs> banging her hand or her head in the background. But you know, to her word and to the to the board's credit, they were like, okay, you know, and and everything I've just said is a rational argument. But we also understood it brought whimsy, you know, it brought joy. And to their credit, they said, okay, if we can build it in a way where it's clear that if it doesn't work. And, I, and actually, I don't mean functionally, because we knew it would work functionally. If it doesn't work, if it is not well received, that in time we can actually tear it out and put a more conventional organization in, let's go for it. It is, it is a, a space in the building that just brings unfettered joy to people. You know, it's, it's strangely probably one of the most photographed places in the building, when it's not the most grand by any means. Um, yeah, so it... I think it's a good example in fact of of what we we're discussing. The small balcony has a has its own anecdote, which is that during this whole process, I fell in love and wanted to propose to my girlfriend who eventually became my wife and the mother of my daughter, and unfortunately is no longer my wife but that came into the project as literally I wanted a place to propose and basically no one knew it was getting built. We were done with construction documents and I drug my collaborator at LMN and the structural engineer, both who were very good friends, into a room, told them what I wanted to do and we changed the drawings and it got built. you know, I, I've admitted that to, to the librarian and the board subsequently, but there was definitely a moment where people were like, gosh, I don't remember this. <laughs> what is this? I don't totally remember this promontory.
0: It's um, awesome. I think it, it totally works. Like, it's, it's a cool space up there, especially because is it the highest point in the building or it's one of the highest yeah, points? It's, it it's
1: right? the highest public point in the building. And, and true to my word, I proposed uh, on the night of the opening.
0: You know, with a project like that, it's so successful. I mean, we could go on and on about what's so amazing about it. If you were to redo that project now in 2020, is there anything you might, you know, look back and go, maybe we should have done that a little differently?
1: Yeah. In fact, we talk about that a lot, that particular project, but also the observations I've had since then, which is, to to be honest, the, the project, from an architectural standpoint, there is a lot of naivete in it. That's some of its success. But there also, you know, there are things where we detailed it in a kind of down and dirty way because you know the building was built for, you know, it was hundred and eleven point nine million dollars. It's uh, a four hundred twenty-five thousand square foot building, so it says, and it's like you know two hundred and sixty-seven dollars a square foot or something. You know, it's a kind of remarkable, and people always don't believe that. And like it's a public job, you can go, you know, <laughs> I can't hide that. But you can see that there are limitations on, you know, in an ideal world, um, library budgets wouldn't be constrained and they would be able to maintain it as they used to, but they don't have those budgets. And so you can see that there's certain areas where the whimsy and the kind of down and dirty nat- nature just ends up starting to, to become a liability.
0: And Can you give an example of that?
1: certain junctures that you know um the underslung facades some of them are very very shallow and so it required a very long uh, sort of (laughs) it's hard to call a florida wall grill because that walls like you know 15 degrees but you know there's these these interfaces and they're very long and so you know you have to pick up the grill to to clean underneath it and it's easy to, to clean in theory but you know, it's a big piece and they don't have the manpower to do so. And so you just see that it kind of collects dirt and sometimes even garbage. And it's not, maybe I'm getting older and more conservative, but I look at those things now and go, ah, <laughs> you know. I, I think there's another, I, I, it's funny, the, the next thing I'm going to say, I don't think that building suffers from it. And I don't think it suffers from it both because, The steel fabricator, first, the team was exceptional. The steel fabricator um, that we had built the steel really well and the facade subcontractor, Sela built an extraordinary facade. And so I don't think you see what I'm about to say in that building, but I think you definitely see it a lot in a lot of work, which is very... and, and, And perhaps maybe it's because the building is still... Um, Cartesian, even though it's sloped. You know, if you look at all the plans, there's still rectangles. There's still rectangles that are all in the same orientation to each other. Uh, and maybe that's actually why it, it doesn't suffer, from what I'm going to say. But I, I think, you know, we were talking at the very beginning about form making, and, you know, you mentioned Patrick Schumacher, and my personal sense, and this is very self serving because, you know, I don't know if you remember that there was a movie with Dudley Moore in which he was in an insane asylum. He was an ad exec in an insane asylum, and they came up with ads uh, that, the, you know, that were sort of like really good, but they were a little too truthful. And one of them that they came up was for Volvo, and, and the ad for Volvo was "We're boxy, but we're good." It's self-serving because we definitely have, you know, between me and my therapist, we've got some kind of weird box thing going on, and I don't know what it is. You know, push comes to shove, we're going to go to box we're going to go to rectilinear, we're going to, you know, so, you know, I'm saying that with kind of full full disclosure and self-criticality that maybe what I'm about to say is a bit self-serving, but a lot of the form making that I see being made now, we don't have the construction technology to support it. And I don't mean we don't have Katia or Gary Technologies or, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I I mean, we're not growing our buildings yet. There are architects out there who are investing incredible intelligence in thinking about how we might create systems that aren't sort of in the whole Henry Ford model of assemblage of discrete elements being assembled, but we're not there yet. So I'm not saying it won't happen, but we're not there yet. And until we are there, we still live in an environment in which we have sheet goods that are rectangular. We still build cartesianally. We still build in systems. We still have that kind of uh, forward assemblage. And I just don't think we can achieve the quality. I, I don't see it. I don't see buildings that are wildly idiosyncratic with the exception of projects maybe like Seattle. And honestly, I've never thought about this before. And maybe it's because that building is still Cartesian, but the assemblies just aren't done elegantly. You know, um, There are a lot of buildings that are extraordinary as in design and are extraordinary in photo from a distance and when you get close, you realize that simply no one can build to the tolerances to make that elegant arc elegant. And Um, Again, I'm not saying that we won't get there. I just don't think that we are there
0: yet. You've said multiple times, and it's on your website, that we side with neither form nor function, and you have this sort of stance against this trope of, you know, form follows function, and I don't know if bad experience as a child or what it was, but uh, where does this come from? And if you were to, you know, Distill your work into some architectural catchphrase that every famous architect seems to have one. Back in the day, what would that be?
1: Well, I, we touched on this a little bit. That more than a decade ago, I used to describe this as hyper-rationality—the idea that that being really rational, you know, that that a lot of what people think is rational is actually conventional, and convention is not necessarily rational. That it just means you've accepted certain. Ideas without challenging them and they often in the, in the new situation that they're inserted, they actually aren't rational. And so if you really embrace rationality and just run towards it and run towards it in a kind of hyper way that you, you will actually transcend a lot of convention and come at at very new, novel, highly performative solutions that are also so unusual, they're highly aesthetic. We can debate whether or not everyone thinks they're beautiful or not. We do, like we, when we get to that moment, we definitely are vetting things on aesthetics. But as I said, it, it's almost then becomes in the realm of a of a personal predilection because we know that the options that we're evaluating each step of the way are functionally performing. Um, so I very intentionally though used the word perform like several times in that description. If I would say anything now, the way I try to describe it is, is performance. And what I like about the word performance is it also includes the word form in it. So, and just as a reminder that form is functional, iconography is functional. And the example I always use when when discussing with students is to talk about the St. Louis Arch. It's only got one functional purpose and that's to be a form, right? So if you were trying to, for, for every project, there is an appropriate balance of organization and functionality, and I, I actually would keep organizations slightly discreet from functionality, largely because I think people, I think it helps to keep people to aware of the multivalency of, of functionality and form. Like, you know, if you have a stereo equalizer and you're trying to adjust them to have the, the right mix for the song you're playing, the St. Louis Arch is, is heavy on the form. <laughs> there's not There's not much else there. In a a really important, good way. And so every project has this right mix. And and we use the word performance to mean that right mix, that every project has a certain performative measure that we're trying to hit. And it's part of those initial positions that we're taking with our clients of, of what those are. And very often, iconography is one of them. We try to get into what they mean by that so that we, again, are responding intelligently, not just intuitively but so yeah i would say performance
0: what's your proudest moment in architecture
1: um the opening of seattle
0: what's the biggest setback you've had in your career and how did you use that to kind of get to where you are today
1: i don't think a lot of people know this but in the recession we went from about 65 people down to four and you know that was a that was actually a wildly empowering experience because we've built the firm back to where it is today. We have the most exciting projects we've ever worked on, we're working on at present. I couldn't be more proud of those projects than anything. And and I say that honestly, I I believe that within a couple of years, when you ask me the question of what's my proudest moment, it won't be the opening of Seattle. It'll be the opening of the projects we have on under construction at present. Um, I think that they do the same thing we wanted to do in Seattle, but they're more mature. There was a moment where you know it it was dire. Uh, I was one month away from not only losing the office but my home and everything and there was no way in rebuilding the office but you know it, if I could be really honest with an untold number of people on a microphone that i can 't see, there was always a, a kind of Inner doubt of did we achieve what we did because of the critique that I had heard about you know writing Rem's coattails. There's no question that after going down to four people and having the office's server underneath my dining room table and having my team sitting at my dining room table on laptops, drawing the office back into what we are now, that I still have that doubt. What we do today is ours, and I do it without any. Yeah, it, was, it was just wildly empowering, but also the most soul-searching experience in my life. And it was long. <laughs> it was years long.
0: I'm 80 episodes into this podcast, and I think that's honestly one of the best responses we've had. So that was really nice. What advice would you have for young Joshua sitting in his design studio, thinking about what the future holds, knowing what you know now? What advice would you have?
1: I think I'd say two things. One is, is trite, but it's true, which is, you know, and it, it, it you know it piggybacks off what I said a moment ago, which is, I don't care what you're taught in school, when things get ugly, when you're sitting in your underwear with your head in your hands at your dining room table, trying to save your professional life, you're going to do what you do. And so you should just make your career out of doing what you do, because that's ultimately what you're going to do in the most significant moments anyway. So embrace how you think and how you operate and build. You know, there's a, I had a, an amazing professor at the GSD uh, named David Hickey who talked about Andy Warhol and how what Andy, what Andy Warhol's project was as he made the world safe to be Andy Warhol. I just thought it was a beautiful way of understanding one's work. And I would say, yeah, that, do that. Do what makes it safe to, you know, your project should be to do what makes the world safe for you to continue to do what you do. Again, it's a trite statement, but I think it's I think it's very important. Um, the other is that, and I think it's a. It follows on from what I just said: is that work within your community. You know, I, I look at people like Peter Zumter, and you look at his body of work, which is extraordinary, and. Yes, he has now gotten his appropriate recognition. There are many architects who have worked just as Peter Zumter has who haven't. And what I mean by that is he worked locally and he worked with incredible integrity for a lifetime. And that's what his goal was. And look at what he's achieved. And so I guess when I talk to students, I'm like, you know, don't know where to go right now in this economy, go home, do a bus stop. Design a bus stop for your local municipality, but make it the best goddamn bus stop anyone's ever seen. Because that will beget the next project again in your home, where you know people and you already have connections and you already have latent, you know, power structure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You even if you don't think you're politically connected, you know it better than you know anywhere else. And so embrace that, and that will beget the next project, the next project, and it will be built on integrity, and. I think it's in, in, particularly in this difficult moment, both financially and, and with the pandemic, that that's the best way to operate.
0: If you could sit down and have a cup of coffee with any architect that could be this generation, that could be of a past generation, who would that be and why?
1: Gordon Brunshaft. I think he's at the bottom. <laughs> <Good
0: enough. laughs> Last question What's next for Rex?
1: What is next for us? I mean, we're a number of projects, as I said, that I'm super excited about. They they will open, two of the most significant will open probably within months of each other in 2022, and that's the Perlman Center at the World Trade Center and the Brown, Brown University Performing Arts Center. And as I said, I think they're the culmination of everything I've said in this interview and all the experiences. It's the next milestone for us. these projects have the, I think the intellectual rigor that is really important to me. And I personally, you know, the world will have their say as to whether or not they are beautiful in whatever, in whatever way you want to define them as beautiful, but um, they each advance what a performing arts building can be in a really, what I think is an important way. They, they kind of, you know, something I, You'd asked about what word I would use to describe the firm and I said, or, or you know, our methodology and I said performance. The, the other is agency. They are tools in the best possible sense. And we really feel that buildings should be tools that empower their their constituencies. And both those buildings in very, very different ways do it to my wildest dream. And I think they both have a lot of integrity in terms of, you know, their staying power. They're, you know, I, I think that they're not whimsical, but they have whimsy. They're, you know, as I get older, timelessness is more important to me than a kind of fleeting extraordinariness. You know, with, with the opening, of those two buildings, my hope is that that will then beget the sort of, you know, architect for, for the work of a firm goes in waves and we'll, we'll finish a whole host of buildings and, my hope is that we'll get the next wave of work that will allow us to figure out how to advance that idea further of agency.
0: Well, Joshua Ramos, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me. I thought this was great. I hope you enjoyed it and I think the people will too. So thanks a lot, man. Thank Enjoy you. everybody. Thank you for listening to an episode of Designed, a podcast by Architectural Record. If you enjoyed this episode, we would appreciate you taking a moment to subscribe to the podcast, give us a rating, and leave us a comment. Have a wonderful day.